0: Hi, it's John Campbell here. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, I'm really pleased to have my friend and colleague, Dr. Murray Jelinski, join the podcast. Murray's going to talk about one of his areas of expertise from many years ago, abomasal ulcers. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Murray. It's great to have you here today. And maybe we'll start by having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and your research areas, what you do at the U of S here
1: okay thanks john it's been a pleasure to be invited back or to be invited to talk about abomasal ulcers it's uh, one of those areas of research that i started oh many many years ago 30 years ago and and uh and i'll get into it I'm i'm actually rekindled some interest in ulcers more recently so we'll talk about that in a moment so real briefly, uh, I graduated from the vet school in Saskatoon in 1985. Shortly thereafter, I started my own mixed animal practice in Moosaman, Saskatchewan, right along the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border. I was there for seven years, and it was actually during that time that I became intrigued, I guess would be the word, with, with the calves dying of ulcers. You know, the typical case of calf is doing great, found dead on pasture, you know this belief it's always my best calf the producers was always their best calf that seemed to die it always seemed to be had to be a you know a, a bull calf or, or castrated calf but a male no matter what and so i was always intrigued by that so i came back in in 1992 to the vet school in saskatoon again and started doing my master's degree and john you were one of my supervisors at that time and uh, looked at the epidemiology of abomasal ulcers that is you know when does it occur who does it affect uh, potentially why do they occur and what can we do to prevent them so and then from then I kind of I took a big change in my career I joined the pharmaceutical industry way back when with herx That I did drug registrations did that for a number of years and then joined a small biotech company here in saskatoon called biostar where we're looking on looking at some pretty innovative vaccines where you could actually vaccinate an animal to castrate it so we did that for a number of years and and that company was bought out by another company called metamorphics and i became the general manager of that so i spent quite a few years in the pharmaceutical industry and then boy time goes by dr campbell it's been almost 20 years that i've been Back at the vet school as the Alberta beef chair uh, so my most of my research is is focused on the feedlot, all on beef cattle uh, and one of the things I guess you and I did uh, as soon as I joined John we started looking at you know the, one of the timely topics is the shortage of of food animal practitioners, and you know we were looking at that many years ago and and I don't think we solved that one and it's it's probably gotten worse but uh, you know, we were looking at that before anybody else found it of interest. So, so did that. Then, more after that, I got quite involved in looking at a bacteria called Mycoplasma bovis. And, and Mycoplasma is very common in feedlot cattle. It causes chronic pneumonia and arthritis. We'll see it in beef calves and particularly dairy calves as well. Uh, but it's really a a feedlot disease. So I've spent most of my career at the vet school, here looking at at mycoplasmas, also took up an interest in another interesting disease. It's called toe tip necrosis, and it's where cattle coming into the feedlot develop, basically, you know, ulcers in the tips of their toes, and they become quite painful, and and the infection can spread to the other parts of their body, and the end up the the animal might be found dead, uh, or they might have to end up shooting them just because they're so lame. If you don't amputate the toes. you you might have to shoot these animals. So spent quite a bit of time looking at toe tip necrosis. And I guess more recently, um, not unlike your research, John, everybody's quite interested in antimicrobial resistance, particularly in the feedlot. So working with Dr. Tony Razzini, and we have a number of grad students in in that area looking at AMR. In between, during COVID did a, uh, Was also interested in doing some studies of just parasites in in pastured yearling cattle. And, you know, that's perhaps a topic for another podcast one day. I think we found some very interesting results about, about that. Should you be deworming your calves on, or your yearlings on pasture? Does that pay? You know, we tend to think that, you know, in Saskatchewan, Western Canada, parasites aren't a big deal, but yeah, we can show economically, they do have an impact on pastured yearlings. And so as I started out saying that, you know, I've kind of rekindled my interest in in abomasal ulcers about two years ago, I just went online. I was trying to figure out, you know, what's the latest publications in this area. And I found that a veterinarian over in Indiana, Dr. Alexander Hund, he had actually started looking at ulcers using sort of a new microbiological technique. You know, historically, we'd take a swab of a, a lesion and we'd put it on some growth media to see if we could grow the bacteria. Well, the big buzzwords now in in the world of research when it comes to microbiology is talking about the microbiome or the microbiota. So now we can take a a swab we can pull the DNA from all those bacteria that are in that swab and we can run them through sort of a genetics pipeline and we can tell you, hey, that sample has this type of diversity of bacteria and this is the most abundant. So in the last couple of years, Dr. Hund and, and Re- Dr. Rene Petrie, who's at uh, Ag Agriculture, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Sherbrooke, uh, we teamed up together with a bunch of producers and, and veterinarians in Western Canada and we started going back to solicit, you know, cases of abomasal ulcers. So over the course of two years. And unfortunately we kind of hit the COVID window when we were doing this, so it was a little bit more difficult, but we were able to get about 50 or 60 submissions of ulcers and of pieces of tissue from the gut that came from calves without ulcers. And we're just doing that analysis now. Uh, One of the things we'll talk about is that, you know, there's always been this belief that a bacteria called Clostridium perfringens type A is associated with ulcers. So we thought, you know, I looked at that many years ago and I couldn't see that association. We thought maybe with some new techniques, we can find something unique or prove or disprove that theory. And so we're kind of working our way through that right now. At the moment, the preliminary data would say, yeah, clostridium fringens doesn't look like it's it's an agent of ulcers. And uh, we haven't found anything unique. Probably the one thing that we did find unique, and John, you might appreciate this from all your microbial resistance work is that we did look at calves that were treated with with antimicrobials and ones that haven't been and you know we can find through this genetic typing we can actually isolate genes that are related to antimicrobial resistance so even in, in baby calves or young calves that have never been exposed to antimicrobials uh, we still find that the bacteria they have in their gut, carry resistance genes. So that's always been a fascination, I guess, for many of us that it's, you know, even if we never used antimicrobials in the the industry, we'd still see resistance no matter what.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, You gave us great preview to maybe a couple other episodes. I'm hoping to (laughs) wrangle you to do a few more on those topics that you talked about. So that's awesome. And you mentioned me being one of your supervisors Well, I was a baby professor here at the vet school. I think when you showed up as a grad student, we're, we're the same uh, generation of veterinarians, really, uh, in terms of graduation times. And we probably should shout out Dr. Jansen, who who was a mentor to both of us and often the driver behind many of these kind of studies where we're looking at some unusual disease syndrome in cattle. He He was the guy. Uh, so, shout out to Eugene and and all the many things he's done for us and in the industry over the years. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll back up a little bit. Uh, so, you mentioned we're going to talk about abomasal ulcers, which which uh, you did your original work on. There probably hasn't been a whole lot of other research since then, other than this stuff you've talked about out of Austria. But let's just start by, what does it look like? So if a producer had some calves that were dying of abomasal ulcers, what would they see?
1: Really good question, John. And and uh, I, I think there's kind of almost a syndrome that is happening in these calves. So I can say that, you know, when we look at abomasal ulcers, almost all of them will occur between three and eight weeks of age. Okay. Some are younger. So we've actually had Confirm cases of abomasal ulcers at five days of age, and we've had them out to four months, but you can basically say that 90% of them are gonna fall in that three day week window. Often it's hard to make a definitive diagnosis of an ulcer, unless they're found dead and you do a post-mortem. And that's really the typical presentation is I started out by saying, uh, you know, what fascinated me about this disease when I was in practice was just that, you know, I'd get a call. Can I bring in a calf for postmortem? And you'd open them up. And after a while, you could almost guess you're looking at a, what appears to be a healthy calf dead in front of you. It's that fits that one to two month of age and uh, no previous treatments, no evidence of scours, no pneumonia, not unusual to open those calves up and find an ulcer. So that's how we usually find them. What you'll often, when Dr. Jansen and I, we drove across Western Canada during my masters and identified through veterinarians, herds that they thought they were having issues with ulcers. When we actually went and investigated those herds, what we usually found was not so much dead calves. And so when we talk about an outbreak, of abomasal ulcers, it's not like an outbreak of of respiratory disease or an outbreak of of diarrhea where you have forty or fifty percent of them sick and five percent of them or ten percent of them dying. An outbreak of abomasal ulcers in a herd of say a hundred or two hundred or three hundred cows and heifers might be three or four confirmed cases of uh, perforating ulcers in calves. We don't see ten and. Uh, three or four would be considered an outbreak what we do tend to see at the same time which creates confusion is calves that have sort of a pear-shaped abdomen they kind of you can almost hear it sloshing around the fluid in their belly when they're walking they have a really poor hair coat kind of dry they don't look good often not sucking the mother mom's got a tight bag and the other thing strangely but very consistently The producers report these calves are out sucking and drinking puddles of water and you know just in the in the yard or drinking slough water and so the fact that we we see these things together makes me think uh that the, the the there is something bigger happening and so there's some sort of dysfunction happening in the abomasum and so the abomasum is like a human stomach it's you know it's where all the digestion happens and you know, if you can appreciate that a calf when it's born, it's basically like a human. It only has one stomach because it's just digesting milk. So we call that a monogastric. Then over the course of a couple months, they become ruminants. They start, you watch those calves, they're out grazing. They're starting to pick at some you know, hay and roughage. And now they're starting to develop all four stomachs, the rumen and everything, with the abomasum being the last of the four stomachs. This is quite important actually, because the timing of these ulcers at three to eight weeks of age fits perfectly when they're transitioning from being a monogastric, basically living off milk to now living off mum and also things that they can eat from their environment. I don't think that's just by coincidence that we're seeing ulcers there at that time. It's probably all related. And I think some of these calves, there's dysfunction, they're, 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 they're the bacteria, the microbiome that populates their gut is changing quite a bit. And I think a lot of these calves go nicely through that transition. Everything's great, the, you know, they're healthy and they just move right along. And for other calves, for whatever reason, bacteria in the environment or management factors or who knows what's going on, they develop undifferentiated abomasal dysfunction. like. Something's going on with the abomasum. It's not functioning properly. We're not quite sure why. So so when people say, I have an outbreak of abomasal ulcers and you go out and you look at the calves and you go, yeah, there's a lot of kind of tough looking calves here. How many have died? And if they say none you say, well, how do you know you have abomasal ulcers? Well, I just assume that was it. And I think that's the assumption we have to watch out for just because they have a sloshy belly and that slosh is fluid accumulating in their room and in their abomasum just because they have a sloshy belly it doesn't mean that they have an ulcer and certainly doesn't predict that they're going to get a perforating ulcer so to go back to answer your original question john tell, you know, what does an abomasal ulcer look like? Again, usually confirmed on death. If you could catch them right before they die, they're gonna be very, very depressed. These calves have have developed a hole in their abomasum. All that ingesta, that content in their stomach is now leaking into their abdomen. So they develop what we call a riparine peritonitis. And so that makes them septic right away. The bacteria get in their bloodstream and they become extremely depressed. They're often very dehydrated at that point too. Uh, You might not even be able to get them up. And so it's kind of a heroic operation to say, hey, we'll open those calves up and see what we can find. And when you do open them up, you're gonna find milk curds and everything else floating around in the abdomen. And if they survive the surgery, they probably won't live that much longer, anyways. And so that's kind of typical if you can catch them early enough. I think there are others, there are other ulcers too, John. There's what we call the perforating ulcer that affects about 90 to 95 percent of these calves. There's about another five, 10% percent they will actually develop bleeding ulcers. And so if they develop a bleeding ulcer, that's a little bit different. Those calves have really black feces. As that blood in leaks into their abomasum, it gets digested. And as it get, goes through the digestive tract, it turns charcoal black. So if you haven't given your calf anything else for scours that could make their, their their manure look black, and you see black tarry feces, you know they're bleeding. And the blacker it is, the higher up it is. So if it's bright red, then it's probably they're bleeding from their lower gut and it's their colon, it's probably coccidiosis. But if it's tarry black, then that's a good signal that oh, you probably got a bleeding ulcers and those ones we could probably treat. Just like we use uh, over almost over-the-counter medications now for humans, you can use the exact same thing. They're basically, the medications are aimed at stopping acid production because essentially what we're talking about when we calf gets an ulcer they're They're digesting their own lining of their intestine. that's what's going on and so, if you can stop that acid production, you allow that ulcer to heal if it's a bleeding ulcer, they'll probably get over that so antimicrobials to cover for an infection and something to stop acid production so two different scenarios, but that's kind of that's kind of what you're going to see.
0: You've mentioned this already, so outbreaks do occur, but they're small outbreaks or yeah does it cluster in certain herds? Do we see certain herds more predisposed to it? And are there any risk factors we know about?
1: It's a, it's a great question. So uh, again, Dr. Jansen and I, we kind of put the word out, and this would probably have been in like 1993 when we were doing this, to veterinarians in Western Canada. If you have any herds that you believe are confirmed is having outbreaks of ulcers, please call us and we would get in the vehicle and drive from here to BC and back. So got on the farm, and it's always as you can appreciate John from doing all your disease investigations that you have to get on the farm to really get an understanding of what's going on. And and so when we when we come to these farms, often there is no history of ulcers in the past, or it's like Well, if I think about it long enough, I think we had some calves die five or 10 years ago. And so it tends to cluster in time, but that gets a little bit confusing. So in Western Canada, as we can all appreciate, we have a relatively tight calving season. Most of the cases we saw back then were April, May. That was, you know, 30 years ago. Calving seasons might be pushed on a little bit further now, but... By and large, when they do occur, most of those calves, when producers have an issue, it'll last for about two, three weeks. You have a couple dead calves, maybe a couple days apart, one a week later and another one, and then it's done. So that's confounded a little bit by, you know, as the calves are all getting older, once they get over that sort of eight-week age window, the disease just sort of starts diminishing anyways. So that's kind of typical. And then... At the time when, when I was looking at, at ulcers, there's a, there's a couple theories about what's going on. So one was nutritional. There was some work done in the U.S. saying calves with, that have a copper deficiency, they're more likely to get ulcers. Well, so that was one of the things that Eugene and I really pressed the, the producers on. And surprisingly, a lot of these outbreaks were occurring in very well-managed herds. We're talking about herds where they're given supplementation late in the in the pregnancy period to the, the cows and the heifers. The calves were allowed creep feed with minerals. We can always debate how much they're gonna eat, but at least it was available. There, it wasn't consistent like, yeah, every herd we go to, they're not using minerals. That was not the case. And in in many cases in Western Canada, you're gonna find copper deficiency even in healthy calves. So it's really hard to say, yes, it's a copper deficiency. The other one, as we talked about, was some is Clostridium perfringens type A. There was a researcher named Dr. Roeder from Kansas, and she was really looking at this. And, and why her study was important is because People, when they were seeing these calves dying and submitting them to the lab, and when they cultured them, they often found Clostridium perfringens type A. So it became, hey, that must be the cause of the disease. So she actually took some calves and she inoculated them, healthy calves, inoculated them with this uh, a solution or culture of Clostridium perfringens. You know what she was able to do best is she really recreated these calves with the sloshy bellies. And when you open up their abomasum, it was very reddened, you know, it was kind of angry, wasn't very happy. And there was erosions, not ulcers. Erosions are just tiny little defects in the mucosa or the lining of the gut. Whereas an ulcer is really, you know, the penetration much deeper into those tissues and all the way through the wall of the gut where it perforates. So I could be convinced that Clostridium perfringens type A is the cause of many of these, or could be the cause of these calves with sloshy bellies. So one of the things people started doing is, hey, you know, if I have Clostridium, I'm going to start vaccinating everything with an eight-way vaccine. Well, per- First off, um, it's rather thin, it doesn't, there's no evidence to show that clostrium causes the perforating ulcers. And it's highly unlikely that you're gonna get cross protections for clostrium perfringens type A with a standard eight way. So there are, I believe vaccines that are available for that, but I wouldn't be running out to vaccinate my calves. One of the things which is, uh, is it is difficult to do, I guess, when you're trying to study a disease that occurs very sporadically. So, you know, John, you and I are used to studying bovine respiratory disease in the feedlot, and we can predict 20 or 25% of the calves on arrival will get the disease, and then it's easy to follow them. Here, you're looking at an ulcer here and an ulcer there. It occurs one year on this farm it doesn't occur for 10 years so studying sporadic diseases are very challenging and it also leads to I think people getting a little bit confused about so last year I had ulcers and I didn't feed mineral but this year I fed mineral and I don't have ulcers so it was a mineral problem or this year, I decided I'm moving my cows out sooner to pasture, and I didn't have ulcers. Or this year, I vaccinated all the cows in the spring when I gave them their vaccines for scours. I just decided, my vet told me, here, what can it hurt? And yeah, I don't have ulcers. And so that's one of the problems. Had they had they never done anything, they probably wouldn't have ulcers anyways, right? And so that's the challenge of the disease, and that's what we need to be very much aware of just because uh, you didn't, you did one thing and you didn't get ulcers. It doesn't imply that whatever you change was the cause of ulcers. Okay. And so again, it comes to your clustering, John. It's a very good question. It clusters a little bit in time and it clusters on herds. So, you know, we can look at a hundred herds and not see any ulcers or might have one or two herds with ulcers. And within those herds, we're talking of three or four, and they all fall within a very tight pattern.
0: It's a good point that it's tough to study because of that. We should mention that the clostridial vaccines are one of those core vaccines that we do want to vaccinate our calves for. But in Canada, we don't have a clostridium perfringence type A vaccine. I believe they have one in the U.S. and maybe in Australia and New Zealand. They have some there, too. And we've had veterinarians import them for herds where they thought they might be having a perfringence type A problem. I actually just saw a post-mortem report from PDS, older calves, I think these were almost grass cattle that were dying suddenly that looked like perfringence type A. And they did have abomasal inflammation and a couple of them had ulcers, but these were much older calves, not the same syndrome at all. Yeah. So it does cause that. And it's interesting that clostridium organisms are kind of one of those things where if the microbiome gets messed up, they tend to proliferate. So maybe they're the secondary factor and not the primary factor. There's something else going on ahead of them too. Who knows? But but it's very interesting. And certainly it was a common theory at the time. And still some people think it was. The other big common theory was hairballs. Everybody yep. said, hey, it's got to be hairballs. I see hairballs every time I see an ulcer. Uh, what did your research reveal about that theory?
1: Yeah, so real quickly, just touching back on the clostridia, in one of the studies that we did within my master's is we looked at calves coming through the post-mortem rooms here at the university and elsewhere, and 75% of the ulcers we could culture clostridium perfringens type A. However, in 75% of the calves that died of all other causes, pneumonia, scours, got stepped on, whatever, we could also culture 75% of those ones had Clostridium in their gut as well. So uh, it really goes to show you uh, that it's kind of everywhere. And you're right, John, if if something happens to that gut in the microbiome, you know, Clostridium are always there. They're always lurking. And so I'm not saying that the perfringens doesn't do something. It does produce toxins, but it doesn't recreate Perforating ulcers. I can believe that it recreates sort of what we see what we call an abomasitis in the abomasum where it's reddened and you have know, these 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 little erosions. That I can believe it does. That I can believe it does. So yes, the 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 big the big theory had always been it's gotta be hairballs. And and yeah, i would admit I was one of those believers. You know, I'm out in practice and I open up these calves and I get convinced. I get convinced it's a male calf all the time. It's the best calf in the in the herd and then died of ulcers. Well, when we looked at the epidemiology of ulcers and we're talking over two hundred cases confirmed by veterinarians in the field or in diagnostic labs, we find that yeah, there's there's no there's no sex predilection and it it's the heifers just as equally as it's it the <clears throat> is the male calves. Um But then when we drill down into the question, you're asking, what about hairballs? Well, same kind of study like we did with perfringens. We asked the veterinarians and and the diagnostic pathologists, whenever a calf dies between uh, less than three months of age, can you please open its gut and tell us if there's hairballs and tell us, does it have a perforating ulcer? And lo and behold, what do we find? Then in calves one to four months of age, 60% of all calves have hairballs. doesn't matter why they die. If hairballs are involved, they're certainly not necessary because we have calves dying that don't have hairballs. My gut feeling is hairballs really don't do anything. They're just there. And there's another reason to believe hairballs don't do anything. The abomasum is kind of composed of two compartments. There's the first part. It's called the pylorus and kind of where the stomachs dump into that last stomach of the abomasum and it's very muscular and it kind of is used to grind and mix the milk and the feed and everything else that comes into the gut and then you have this bigger part it's almost like the storage part of the abomasum the body or the fundus that's where you always get your ulcers and that doesn't really have a lot of muscle to it but that's where we find all our hairballs so It's very hard to conceive that a hairball is irritating the lining of that gut so much that it's actually worn a hole in it. That's the theory. Well, if that was to happen, that would probably happen in the pylorus. And we do know that in veal calves, particularly a lot of research out of of Europe, that if they feed veal calves roughage, so if they're just on a you know pellets and that, they don't tend to get much for erosions and, and small little ulcers. But as soon as they feed them roughage, then they'll start seeing an increase in ulcers, and they all occur in the pylorus. And so there is probably something to do with that fibrous material being compressed in these strong muscular contractions or, or eroding part of the mucosa. Parts of the mucosa, but that is a very very different scenario than our than our beef calves, where we see a single ulcer, the size of a dime, and it perforates through that at the the body of the the abomasum, and so it really doesn't make sense, sort of mechanically, John, how a hairball would erode. It just doesn't. It doesn't fit any of the data whatsoever. So I'm not a big fan of the hairball theory. I think like I say, 60% of all calves have hairballs. That's why not, right? They go and they're licking mom's bag and there's hair on her bag and then they're grooming themselves. And so they develop hairballs, no big deal.
0: So you ruled out hairballs, you ruled out copper, pretty well ruled out clostridium perfringens. At the end of the day, what did you think is the most likely cause of abomasal ulcers after all your research?
1: Yeah, so... There is some frustration when you take on a research project and, and you can rule things out, but you, you don't come to a definitive cause. So I think we left it. The research at that time is it probably has something to do with a sort of a vascular incident happening in that body of the abomasum. And what do I mean by that? So as I indicated earlier, the abomasum, it is constantly producing acid, hydrochloric acid, and that's critical for digestion of food and also produces a lot of enzymes called pepsinogen that digest proteins. So you can imagine that if you have any any change in sort of the, the lining of that abomasum, where you start getting a bit of an erosion and the acid starts digesting that wall and then the enzymes come in that are set up to digest proteins you're basically when you use the word auto digesting yourself you're actually eating yourself away from the inside that's protected in, in most of us uh, that don't have ulcers we all produce sort of a lining of mucus that coats that that mucosa and it keeps the acid away more importantly the gut has a lot of blood supply and so there's a lot of sodium bicarbonate in our blood and it kind of moves out of the blood vessels into those tissues so any acid that tends to get into that mucosal layer quickly gets neutralized, okay? They call that, you know, the bicarbonate tide, this tide of of a base that will neutralize the acid. So if you can imagine for a moment, if you stop the blood supply, you stop the release of bicarbonate, and now the tissue is prone to getting this heavy dose of acid that's not neutralized. And so if you look at research that has been done in, in lab animals, they can create ulcers within hours. So an ulcer isn't one of these things that takes days and days and days. If you change the blood supply, you will get an ulcer developing very rapidly. And we know that in people. If people get severe burns, they become septic, changes their circulation in their gut. One of the first things that they'll do, even when you have a burn victim, is they'll develop erosions and ulcers in in their stomach. And it's probably all related to, to a circulatory imbalance. So my feeling is this, it's not to me coincidence that the calves all have ulcers roughly between three and eight weeks of age that is the exact same timing where they're transitioning from uh, one stomach to four. There's lots of things happening at that time. Circulation's changing, just anatomically those guts are changing. And so in in the bacteria, flora in those guts are changing too. So while I don't think Clostridium is a cause of ulcers, is it possible that there's other bacteria that are in the gut the change that circulation locally, and they end up getting this ulcer. So one of the one of my next steps, if I was to ever redo this research, I'd actually take healthy live calves and go in and cauterize or stop the circulation to very you know fine little points within the abomasum and see then if we can recreate the disease. So that would be sort of the next step. And you know, John, I don't have a I don't have a sort of a unifying theory for you. I don't think anybody does. You know, I did my research 30 years ago. There hasn't been a lot done since. And I think it's related to two things. One, it's not econ- it's it's an irritation, but economically, it's not huge, right? And so, and the second reason, it's just hard to study. They're just really hard to study. And now I think is we have uh, cow-calf producers even more, you know, as they've gotten larger, their calving is much more extensive. They're not bringing them into the yard as much. They're out on, on pasture. And let's face it, if a calf dies out there, it's probably not going to get postmortem. They're probably not going to get postmortem in time. So you could probably talk to producers and say, oh, I've been doing this for 30, 40 years. We used to have abomasal ulcers and we don't anymore. Eh, it's, a, it's, it's probably a case you do. But you you just, by the time you find them, they're, you know, the coyotes have gotten to them. And you, who knows why they died? And you go, oh, I probably had pneumonia, right? Who knows why it died? So I think it's still out there. It's not economically huge, but it is an irritant when you do see these healthy calves. You think you've gotten them through the toughest part of their life, the first couple of weeks. They're growing, they're healthy, they're out with mom, paired up on pasture, doing great, and then found dead. So...
0: It is frustrating. So if a producer did think they had some calves that were dying of ulcers, they had young, good-looking calves are dying suddenly, what what would you suggest that they do first?
1: I, th- I think the, the most important thing is to get a post-mortem. Do you know, 100% sure it died of an abomasal ulcer? So if it died of a perforating ulcer, take some comfort in that. You're not going to see many more of them and you're probably not gonna get them again next year. So, the problem if you don't get a diagnosis, you just assume that's why it died, and then it turns out it died of pneumonia, and you didn't really appreciate that. And now, you have other calves dying of pneumonia, and now all of a sudden, there's something I could have done. I could have went through and treated all the calves, or I could have increased my surveillance on my, there's lots of things you could have done to prevent some other disease right but you misinterpreted it being a uh, an abomasal ulcer so i think sudden death on pasture you know is that a clostridial disease you know a black leg thing who knows what's going on it sudden death is probably always worth investigating because you don't know is that the tip of the iceberg for uh, an outbreak is something that you could actually manage So. Not, yeah. too, not too worried about, oh, we have a diagnosis of an a perforating ulcer. In a way, that's probably your best outcome, right? Uh, it's something you, you have a definitive diagnosis other than, you know, I opened it up, vet couldn't see anything, we sent off tissues, we spent 300 bucks and we still don't know why the calf died. That's ultimate frustration. The nice thing with a perforating ulcer, even a producer, not not saying that in a condescending way, but producers that have opened up calves before, and sort of have a sense of the anatomy they could go yeah i i found that ulcer i could put my finger right through the hole in its and its its gut i know what that was right so yeah
0: Yeah, that's good advice thanks marie uh that's great summary of that research and it was many years ago but i think it's still useful for our audience and i really appreciate you doing this i'm sure i'm going to try to recruit you back for another one this summer at some point so uh thanks again
1: Yeah. Enjoyed it, John.
0: Okay. Thank you.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: That's our show for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks as always to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Take care till next time.